John 6, going to continue. Amen. So if you remember last week, we, we talked about uh, the uh, people that followed Jesus. They, they, they had experienced the feeding of the multitudes and their, their bellies were filled. And, um, and then they, they realized that Jesus, the next day, they realized that Jesus wasn't there. And they, they, they looked, uh, Jesus wasn't there, the disciples weren't there. And, and they remembered there was really only one boat that went across to the left side of the sea. And so they, they say, wait a minute. You know, we, we, got, we, got our, we got a lunch, a good lunch off this guy named Jesus. And, and so I think we, we need to go track this guy down. And so they, they get in the boat and they, they go across uh, to the other side to Capernaum. And they meet Jesus and they say, hey, hey, how'd you, wh- where'd you go? How, how'd you get here? Where have where, where you been? And then Jesus just, just cuts to the chase. You know, doesn't he do that? Like, he knows exactly who we are, where our heart is, what our motives are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he cut straight to the chase and he told them, you are not, you did not seek me by coming across the sea to find me because you believed in me. You know, he said, he said, you didn't seek me because you saw the sign. And what he was trying to say is they did see the sign, but you didn't seek me because of the sign, because the sign would have pointed to his deity. You sought me because your bellies were filled. And so we talked about temporary bread and temporary satisfaction and how Jesus didn't come just to fill our temporary needs. That's not, what, that's not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is that Jesus came to save us because we needed saving. Because we needed, we needed not temporary bread, not temporary satisfaction. We need eternal bread, the bread of life. And of course, that's the culminating statement of his beginning, the beginning of his conversation with these people that were following him, these Jews that were following him, he said, he said, he, he said, you know, you, you're chasing after temporary bread, and they start talking about Moses and how Moses gave them bread in the wilderness for 40 years, and, and then Jesus says, that's not the bread you need. The bread you need is the bread that comes down from my Father in heaven, and basically he said, I am the bread of life. I am who you need. And, and so that's where we stopped last week. And it's almost, it's, it's kind of a strange little section right here. It's like this interlude in the middle of this conversation that Jesus is having with, the, with these uh, self-seeking seekers, these seekers that are seeking God for the wrong reasons. He just kind of goes on this theological turn here in this conversation. And then after that, it picks up where it says the Jews were grumbling about what Jesus had said about being the bread of life. So it's almost like this, this pause in this narrative here. And Jesus makes some bold statements. And so before we get to these bold statements that Jesus makes, um, I just want to kind of set the stage for it. And so, you know, the foundation in anything is the most important thing, right? So when you build a, when you build a house, the most important structure is the foundation. I remember whenever my, my wife and I were self-contracting a, a, a house, uh, back in 2000 and, well, 2009, I think we were almost done. So we would have started, so I think, in 2008. And the, 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 the most difficult time that we had with any of our subcontractors was to get the concrete guy to pour a slab. Because it just kept raining and it kept raining and it kept raining. And, and then when we'd have dry weather, he was nowhere to be found. Because he was, work, was pouring slab, slabs for all the general contractors in town who had other work for him. 
And little old Ben Buskin, who was only building one house, he's like, well, I'll get to him later. And, uh, and so I, I had to threaten that I was going to go with somebody else. And he probably would have been like, okay, who cares? But he did it anyway. And you know what? He poured the slab after all of that, and he messed it up. <laughs> he cut off, I don't forget, it's been a, been a while, but he cut off some of our master bathroom. And we're like, it's too late. It's done. And it wasn't a whole lot. It wasn't like three or four feet, but it, it was off. And we didn't realize it was off until the framer shows up, right? Framer shows up. He's got the plans. He's doing all the measurements. He's laying out the, the, the base plates for all the walls. And he, he gives me a call and says, do you realize that, you know, your back wall by your master bathroom and back porch is off by X amount of feet and like, or, or, or inches? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and I said, well, what can we do about it? He said, nothing. Like, okay, well, nothing we can do, so we'll just have a smaller bathroom, a smaller back porch. But the foundation is the most important thing of any structure and the most important thing in anyone's life. And, and specifically tonight, I want to talk about our foundational view of who God is and specifically the, the, the nature and, and, and his, his saving work in, in our life. And so the way we view that, the way we view salvation, the way we view how God does that, his saving work, is so important in our life to have a proper view of God and his saving power and how it works in our life. If we don't get it right, if we don't see it correctly, then we can, we can begin to think things that aren't true about who he is, his character, his nature, about salvation and, and how it takes place and, and what God does in salvation. So it's very important, and I feel like these verses that we're going to cover in the middle of this, 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 this uh, discourse that Jesus is having with these, with these, these Jews, um, it's just an interesting section here. So we're going to read it, and you'll see what I'm saying when I read it, and then we're going to try to unpack it for you. So let's look at John 6, 37 through 34. Th- excuse me, 37 through 40. If we look back, let's look back. It's, it's not going to be on the slide, but if you look back, Let's get a running star here. So verse 35, this is where we left off last week. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This eternal bread he was talking about. Verse 35, he says, oh, by the way, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives will come to me. All that the Father gives will gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So that's verses 37 through 40, and there's some really um, strong doctrinal things written in these verses. And so Jesus is painting a picture for us of who God is and His saving work, who, who He is in His character and His nature and His saving power. And there's, there's really three things I want to emphasize here that I see are in this text about who God is. And, and so, what do we see about God through the words of Jesus in these verses? The first thing we see, and we'll go back and look at uh, some 
individual verses here, but the first thing that I see here is that, one, God is a God who loves. We see a God who loves. A God who loves. Let's look at verse, let's go back and look at verse 38 and see a God who loves. For I have come down from heaven. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come down from heaven. Jesus is saying, I've come down from heaven, and I haven't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so why did Jesus come down? Why did God the Father send God the Son, Jesus Christ, to come down to the earth? Why, 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 why did he come? To suffer for our sins? To save us? To be our substitute? But what was the, what was the, what was the motivation? What is Jesus saying here? He says, I've come down from heaven, and I haven't come to do my own will, but I've come to do the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? To save to deliver, to, to, to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. And the motivation of that was what? Was love. God is a God of love. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, he's saying I, I didn't come down to, have to do my own agenda. I didn't come down here to, have, um, to set up an earthly kingdom, though he could have because he was God the Son, God in the flesh. He had all the power and the authority that any person could ever have. He could have, he could have set up an earthly kingdom and ruled forever. But that's, that's not the purpose behind why God sent the Son to the earth. He sent him to take our place, to be our substitute. And the motivation for that is love. Jesus did not come down to fulfill his own agenda. He was not trying to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to fulfill the purpose of the Father. And that's what he said. And the most famous verse that you see written, you see it, people hold it up at football games, in the end zone, behind the goalposts, so people can read it. Tim Tebow write, wrote John 3.16 uh, under his eye black or on top of his eye black when he was in college football. And I forget the stats. I know it was like, I don't know, millions of people that night during the national championship game Googled John 3.16. Just unbelievable. You know that God used Tim Tebow just to get people to look up John 3.16. It's one of the most famous verses in all the scripture. Let, let's look back at it. This is, this is the motivation. This is the heart of of our Father God. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating for us in these verses. He's trying to get these Jews who are following him for the wrong reasons. Again, think back. They're following him because their bellies were filled. And Jesus is telling them, that's not why I came. I came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you would eat eternal bread, which is me. And then we fast forward. We're going to get to this next week. Some pretty crazy stuff that Jesus is going to say to these same people. That's going to really challenge them about bread and about himself. I'm not going to say it now, but we'll say it next week. It's pretty wild. He's trying to get them to see it, but they're not seeing it yet. And some of them don't see it. Some of them walk away. He's trying to get them to see that I didn't come to do my own will. You don't see it yet. I came because the Father sent me. And what is the Father's will? What is the Father's heart? The Father God is a God of love. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. He loved the world. Why did he love us? Created us, right? We're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. But why specifically did God say, I'm going to set my love on them. I'm going to love them by sending my son. Why did he do that? Why did he send his son? Again, I know the motivation is love, but... but Beyond that, 
Show us how to love. Show us how to live. I think it's because we needed saving. Because we were lost. Because we were, as we're going to read some verses on in a few minutes, because we were enemies of the cross. Because we were, we were not wanting to love God. We were lost. We had gone astray. We had gone our own way. We were living according to our own sinful lust and desires and passions and, and he loved us and because he loved us because he didn't because he didn't want to leave us that way because he wanted us to be in relationship with him he sent his son to save us his love was the motivation but it was specifically because we were lost and that's what john three sixteen culminates in for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish so what that says is is that if you don't believe in him, you're going to perish. So that means that before God sent his son, that means that without Christ, that means we're under condemnation. And that's, that's what motivated his love to come in to save, to take our place. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God, this is such, such a powerful verse, no one ever quotes it or reads it in, in football games. You know, put it on the sign. But verse 17 is so important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Right? God did. Like, that wouldn't make any sense, right? If God loves the world, he's not going to send the son to condemn the world, which he could have done. He could have said, you know what? Forget all of creation. We're just going to condemn the world. But because of his love for humanity, his creation, he said, I'm going to send my son, to save them, not to condemn them. I'm going to give them a chance for redemption if they would believe in me. And so that's the heart of the gospel. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you believe in him, you're not condemned. Your sins are forgiven. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. That means... That if you do not believe, you stay in a position of condemnation. And the word condemnation is, is a legal term. To be condemned, it's a legal term. That means that you stand before God, the judge of the, of the world, condemned in his court. And without Christ, we stay in a position of legal condemnation before a holy God. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ can we be free from the guilt that we deserve. And because of the love of God. We, we serve a God of love, a, a God that loves. Because he loves, he sent his son. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says this about ourselves before Christ. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, because he loved us. We once were alienated, we were hostile in mind, we were doing evil deeds, we were living however we wanted to, however we wanted to. But because he loved us, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. His love, because of our condition and our sinfulness and our lostness, his love motivated him to send his son. And this is what Jesus is telling those people. They don't get it. They see temporary needs. They don't see their eternal need. They don't see their lostness. And so many people in our world today, they don't see their losses. Whenever you try to talk to somebody about you, you need to be born again, you need to be saved, you need to be forgiven, and, and, and it doesn't compute. Saved from what? Forgiven from what? I'm not that bad of a person. 
You know, I might lie every now and then, or I may take a second glance at somebody that's not my wife or not my husband. I may do a little bit, but I'm not really that bad. I, I don't need to be saved. People, people don't tend to get it, just like these people don't get it in Jesus' day. People are the same. Philippians 3, 17 through 18 says, says this. Brothers, join me in imi- join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Walk as enemies of the cross. So, so Paul tells us in Colossians and Philippians that people can be hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and because of their lifestyles, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And that is why Jesus came. You know, I think sometimes people think that Jesus came because we deserved it. Right? Because we, we're just, we, we deserve for him to come. You know? It's kind of like this self-esteem gospel. Kind of just this idea that, well, you know, we, are, we inherently de- deserved it, and so that's why God loves us. That's why he sent his son. But, you know, you really can't, that can't hold up to anything in the Bible, in the New Testament, at all. Jesus' writings, the, the Apostle Paul, I mean, like, it, the picture is bleak that we didn't deserve it. What did we deserve? We deserved death. We were lost. We were hostile in mind and deed. We were enemies of the cross. We had no hope for salvation. And God is a God of love. And because he loves, he sent his son. And that's the first picture that we see here. It's so important that we understand that. The, the, those two thoughts, and this is kind of in this first point, these are the two things that I think are so important for us to get that we didn't deserve the love we didn't deserve the love we didn't deserve the salvation we didn't deserve for God to come and save us we didn't deserve it we couldn't earn it that's so important because if you get that wrong if you get that wrong then you can believe then you can begin to believe that you can earn your salvation you can begin to believe that by merit and good works and church attendance by being a good person by being born into the right family all of those things, you can, be, you can believe wrongly about salvation. But we didn't deserve it. That's the first key foundation when we think about God and salvation, that we don't deserve salvation. And, and the, the other key thought on this first point is that God is a God of love. Because we don't deserve it, because of our condition, he set his love on us and came and pursued us. You remember that line in that song? He came running down the prodigal road. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about the love of the Father that comes after us. I love preaching a message on the prodigal son. It's such a powerful picture of the love of our Father God. I, could, I need to stop talking about it because I will preach a whole other message. You will be a little bit longer than you want to be. That is such a powerful message. I'll preach it again uh, as the Lord gives me the opportunity. But it's just such a good picture that that our father runs after us and he ran after us by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us Ephesians 2 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. We naturally are born as sinners. But God, being rich in mercy and love because of, because of what? Because of his great love. A God who loves. Because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. Not just bad. Not just bad, but when we were, say it with me, dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. Because of his great love. So that's the first thought here, first picture of our God. He is a God who loves. Let's go back to the text. Second thing we see here is that he's a God who saves. He's a God who saves. He loves, but he's a God who saves. God does the saving. He is a God who saves. And you think, wait a minute, we just talked about that for 10 minutes. What are you trying to say here? Well, you'll see here just a second. He is a God who saves. Let's look at verse 37. John 6, 37. Then we'll look at verse 40. 37 says, all that the Father gives me, so Jesus is speaking, he says, all that the Father gives me, those that will be saved, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So verse 37, what, what's the picture there that, that we see? That all that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that God is the, is the one who saves. That God is sovereign over salvation. This is a bold scripture here. And there's other scriptures that we could go to to illustrate this. But this is our Lord Jesus saying this. He says that the Father is the one who gives to him those that will be saved. And he says that all that come to me from from the Father, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, You see a picture of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Man doesn't save himself. It's not man's agenda, man's ability. We can't work it up, earn it. It's not not in in our control. We want salvation to be in our control, right? We we would like to think that that's the case. God's the saving God. He's a God who saves. He's a God who loves. but, But salvation is just not up, okay, now God loves and now just we have control over it. It's not true. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's look at this verse 40. So that, that just big picture there of God's sovereignty and salvation. But let's look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So what's this other picture that, that we have here? We talked about this a few weeks back. What's this other picture? We see the responsibility of man to respond in salvation. Verse 37 is a strong verse saying that the Father God is in control of salvation. He saves. He's sovereign over salvation. Only the ones that the Father gives the Son will be saved. Then you look at verse 40, and wait a minute. Jesus also says, this is the will of my Father that anyone who looks... On the Son, that means you, you hear the gospel, you see his goodness, you see who he is, you see who you are, and you, you see that Jesus is God. Anyone who looks on the Son and does what? And believes. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like our responsibility. It sounds like our action. It sounds like our movement. God is sovereign, but we're responsible. Verse 37 gives us a clear picture 
of God's sovereignty and salvation. In verse 40, it gives us a clear picture of man's responsibility to look and believe. Jesus gives for us, again, we, and, and we look back when we studied in John 3, and we'll read a couple of verses there. He gives us a divine paradox. Some, some even see it as a divine contradiction by human standards. How can God, how can Jesus say that only those that the Father give me can be saved, and that this, on, in the next breath say, it's those that look and believe are saved. And so by, by human understanding, it really doesn't make sense. Let's look at John 3. Let's look at John 3, verses 5 through 8. This is, this is a few weeks ago, we, we looked back at this same contrast. This is Jesus speaking to, Nic, to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus goes into this crazy verse and starts talking about the wind. So he says, the wind blows where it wishes. It's an important phrase there. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So he says, this little example I gave you about the wind, about how you can't control the wind, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes. That example is to illustrate for you, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and he's telling us, he's telling us in John 6, you can't control salvation. It's not up to you to do the saving. But you got to look. But you got to believe. But you got to respond. That's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe would have eternal life. Why does God do that to us? <laughs> we were talking in staff meeting about this paradox, about God's sovereignty and man's free will and, and how it's just like, it, it, it doesn't make sense to us. But you know what? It's perfectly worked out in the mind of God. God saves. He uses the gospel to save and we have to respond. God, God knows who, who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. What is God telling us, though, through this seeming contradiction? Here's what I think is so important. This is a foundational belief. Look, and you'll get it when we get to my last point, so just hang in there. I know this might be a little deep. Uh, You're going to get this. What is God telling us? He's telling us that he is the one who saves. God is the one that is in charge of salvation, not man. That's what he's telling us at the simple level. And my question to all of us would be, would we want it any other way? Right? When people have a difficulty with God's sovereignty, they always try to say, well, hey, I don't want it that way. I don't want a sovereign God who's in charge of everything. Oh, really? Would you want the opposite of that? I don't think that will work out very well for you. You you want everything to be determined by your will and your choices? No, no, that, that doesn't, we can't have it both ways. We, we, we like it whenever God sovereignly does things that we like, but what about when we lose our loved one? What about whenever people die of starvation in foreign countries? What about the tsunamis and the earthquakes and the hurricanes? And, and we don't like that. God allows those things. But then at the same time, we say, well, God shouldn't allow those things. God shouldn't allow innocent people to suffer. I want a God who, who stops all of that from happening. I want a God that I can control. But we don't really want that, do we? No, we, we, we need to have a God who's in, who's in control of all of that. 
Because if it was up to us, what would happen? I mean, think about it. If it was up to us, it would be a disaster. It is a disaster. You look at humanity, it's a disaster. So how do you reconcile all of this? You don't. <laughs> you don't. And I'm, I'm throwing, throwing a burden on you. I threw it, threw it on you a few, a few weeks ago. I'm just throwing a burden on you. It, you. You don't reconcile it. You just rest in it. You say, God, you're God, and I'm not, and, and I can't save myself, and I can't save anybody. You know who's going to be saved. You, 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 Jesus said here that all that the Father gives me will come to me. You know it. But I also know it's true that I have to believe and I have to trust. I have to look on him and believe. And I'm just resting in the fact that you're an infinite God. You know more than me. Acts 2.47 says this. This is the early church. After the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit comes and first gospel message is preached by Peter and 3,000 people get saved and church is blowing and going and things are awesome. And it says this in Acts 2.47. It says they're praising God and having favor with all the people. Look at this verse. And the Lord added to the church daily. Added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who added to the church? The Lord. I want to read this. This is by John Stott. We were reading this book. Our, our, our pastoral staff is going through this book called The Living Church. And this is the author. This is his quote about Acts 2.47. It says, the Lord himself did it, speaking of the saving. Doubtless, he did it through the preaching of the apostles, the everyday witness of church members, and their common life of love. But he did it, for he is the head of the church. Although he delegates to pastors the responsibility of admitting people into the visible church through baptism, he reserves the prerogative of admitting people into the invisible church by faith. In our self-confident age, we need to return to this truth. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, can open the eyes of the blind and give life to dead souls and so add people to his church. That's why this is important. And so when God does a work, when God does the saving, when God does a work, what do you think happens? Like, you know, if I start a job, if I'm commissioned to do a job, it's 50-50, right? It may work or it may not. And why is that? Because I'm human. I remember when I worked for Safeguard, the alarm system company, I would have liked to believe that it's 99 and 1% chance. 99% chance I'll do it right and 1% I'll fail. But the odds weren't quite in my favor. Right? Because I'm imperfect. I can make mistakes. I remember plenty of mistakes I've made in people's houses. I had to go in people's houses and drill holes in their window frames and in their ceiling. And, and I, I've poked holes through roofs before. Because <laughs> we have these like four-inch drill bits. You know, they're about that skinny. It's a three-eighth-inch drill bit. And they're about four feet tall. And I'm drilling holes in window frames. And, you know, the idea is, is that you, you go through one. Hold and you go up and then and then you go and you stop and you can, you can tell I could tell when I was hitting the roof. But sometimes, not all builders built the same. <laughs> and and you go through last and you and you realize, whoops. And so then you gotta you know you get chain shingles and all that stuff. But I'm imperfect, right? But when God does a work of salvation, 
What do you think is going to happen? It's perfect. He's not going to fail. When he works a work of salvation in your life because he's a God who loves and he's a God who saves, he doesn't fail. Now, do we want it the other way? Let's go back to what we, I know, I gave you a whole paradox. I messed up your brain for a few minutes. Let's go back and talk about all the things that we talked about. Do we want it the other way now? Do we want it to be about our free will? Do we want control of salvation? Or would we rather have a sovereign God who has it all under his control and he got it figured out? Which one do you want? You want to do the work or you want God to do the work? You want God to do the work, right? And here's the crux of the entire message. I've been preaching for 30 minutes to get to this point. I told you last week I was going to preach on the assurance of our salvation. I can't talk about the assurance of our salvation and the surety that we're saved unless we have a foundation for that assurance. What is the foundation of our, our assurance? The love of God and his saving power. Because God loves and he is all-powerful and sovereign and in control and when he does the work it never fails, then we can know that our salvation is secure. That when we confess Jesus as Lord, we don't have to live in condemnation and fear that we're going to lose our salvation. When we belong to Christ, we can know that we are his. And let's look, at, let's look back at the text. The, the third view of God is that, thirdly, he's a God who keeps. He's a God who loves, a God who saves, and a God who keeps. John six thirty nine. Jesus continues. And he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Lastly, we, we read that verse. He said that all that the Father's given me will come to me. And then he says, all of them that he gives me, I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. He's going to finish the work. If you have been born again, he is committed to you. He is committed to your spiritual growth. He's committed to you becoming more conformed into the image of his son. He's not going to let you go. He's going to lose nothing. All those that he saved, that he saves, will be saved. And they're, they're going to go to heaven. Do you believe that? We've uh, got a few more minutes. I'm going to get to some more paradoxes and contradictions here in just a second that people struggle with. But, you know, there are no partially born-again Christians. There are no half-saved Christians. You don't, you don't partially get born again. I mean, and that's what Nicod- Jesus told Nicodemus, right? He said, you must be born again. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus wanted salvation in his control. He didn't want a sovereign God over salvation. He wanted to save himself. He was a Pharisee. I can do it. He's like the rich young ruler. I've done all these things since my youth. I've obeyed all the commandments. What do I lack? And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, you have to be born again. So what does it mean if, you got, if you're born again? That means you have to do what first before you're born again? You have to die. And this is the beauty of salvation. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. We have to die to ourself, to our flesh, to our desires. When a person is genuinely born again, there is an identity change that takes place. To be born again implies that you must first die. Galatians 2.20. That's what it says. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So when you're born again, that's the, that's the picture of, baptism, of water baptism. When we dunk people in the water, it's symbolic of the fact that when you're a Christian, you're, you're buried with Christ. And when we raise you up out of the water, it's symbolic of the fact that only one new man comes up out of that water. 
It's a new person in Christ. And that's what it says here. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. What's the motivation for his saving work? Loved me, who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the picture of salvation. The old, we've died. We've been raised to newness of life. Been raised to newness of life. If we continue in 2 Corinthians 5, all this, all this saving business, who's in charge of it? Is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, because we were lost, because we were full of rebellion and sin, because we were dead in our trespasses and sin, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, because of our faith in him, we might do what? Become. What, what do we become? The righteousness of God. That's what happens when we die and we're raised to newness of life. We become something totally different. We become the righteousness of God. It's the best news on planet earth. That's why it's the good news. You become something totally different. You become the very righteousness of God. I, I don't, you know, I don't know how much that really sinks into our heart very often. Because I think we're very aware of our sin. Even as Christians, we're so very aware of when we mess up and we sin. But I want you to know that even when you sin, you have not ceased from being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because what did we say earlier? When God does a work, does he fail? No, he's going to complete that work. And what does he do to complete that work? He works on us. He chisels us. He, he sands down the rough edges, the areas of sin in our life. And so remaining sin in a believer's life is, one of the, is the main reason why some believers struggle to believe that they're still Christians. That's why some, some Christians who are genuinely saved have the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life. This is why they will answer altar call after altar call after altar call. And they have no sense of peace in their heart and their mind because, because they still struggle with sin. And they feel like, well, I cannot be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus if I still have sin. But you, you will never reach perfection this side of heaven. Because your flesh is frail and is weak and is imperfect. And so that's the commitment God has for us. He started the work of salvation and he will be faithful to complete it. And this is the process of sanctification that we are in. It's a process. Sanctification simply means a setting apart of our lives unto God in holiness. And that means for the rest of our life, for the rest of our life, God sets us apart unto him by convicting us of areas in our life that we struggle in. And the fruit, the, the, the proof of our salvation is, the, is the, the, the evidence of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
Because we're convicted of our sin. That's the evidence. The Spirit lives in you. So why is our salvation secure? Our salvation is secure because of the one who did the saving. Our salvation is secure because of the one who did the saving. Because of the one who is committed to us. The one who is praying for us. I just want to read a couple more scriptures. We're almost done. Romans 8, 31 through 34 says this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You are God's elect. If you're a Christian here tonight, you are God's elect, chosen ones. He chose you before the foundations of the world. Ephesians tells us that. We are predestined before the foundations of the world to be conformed into the image of the Son. You are the elect of God if you're a Christian here tonight. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody can. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No, no one can. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And this is so powerful. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. The word interceding means he's praying. Do you know we got a glimpse of that prayer? You guys want to know what that prayer sounds like? It's later on in the book of John. John 17. Let's read that prayer as, as we close. John 17. This is, this is the God who is committed to our sanctification and our growing in Christ. Who's committed to the work of salvation he started in our lives. For many of you, years and years ago, he started that work. This is what he prays for you. This is Jesus praying to the Father in John 17. For I have given them the words you, that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, Jesus praying to the Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And what's his prayer for us? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And that is his prayer for us, that we would continue to be set apart to God in holiness through the word of God being taught in our life and being read and absorbed in our heart on a daily basis. He's committed to that work. Our salvation is secure. So, in conclusion, who shall separate us from from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's a loving God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Our salvation is secure. Not because we have the ability in our flesh to maintain it. God's the one who saved us, right? So if we had the ability in our flesh to save ourselves, 
then we'd have the ability in our flesh to maintain our salvation. But we know that's not true. Our salvation is secure not because we have the ability in our flesh to, to maintain it, but because of Christ's ability to work in us through the power of his spirit because of the sanctifying work of the word of God. Amen? Amen. Lord, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word that's sharp and powerful, cuts to the deep parts of our heart. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves. And because of that love, you're a God who saves. Lord, and when you save and you you begin a work, you complete that work. Because of that saving power and that intercessory prayer and that commitment to us, Lord, our salvation is secure in your hands. We can rest in the fact that you will work in us through the power of your word, the sanctifying work of your word in our heart. And Lord, help us to submit to that work. Help us to submit to your Holy Spirit when you convict us of sin. Help us to allow you to chisel away the things that don't belong there. Lord, change us. Make us more like you each and every day. God, we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you, and I will see you on Sunday.